0: Hello listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad free listening experience, members only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR network Slack community, a members only newsletter and members only blog posts for the month of February, take 10% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code FOREIGN. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code FOREIGN. Thank you. 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where it's kind of scarily pleasant out. Actually, it's, you know, in the 70s, the daffodils think it's springtime. They're going to be so disappointed in about 24 hours when it's winter again. But at least we are not being battered by snowstorms like others in the US. We're here to talk about an important story, which is to say the announcement by Russian President Vladimir Putin that he's withdrawing from the only extant nuclear agreement between the United States and Russia and what that means, and some related issues. And we are very fortunate to have two great experts and friends to discuss it with. First, Dr. Emma Belcher. Dr. Belcher is president of the Plowshares Fund. How are you today, Emma?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks, David. Uh, Enjoying that nice snippet of warm weather before we get plunged back to Arctic temperatures.
0: Yeah, me too someday I'll figure out how to do the podcast from outside. We're also joined by John Wolfstall. John is senior advisor of Global Zero and a former special assistant, the president for national security and senior director for non-proliferation and arms control at the NSC. You know, John, when I was in the US government, one of the things I realized was the amount of influence you had was inversely proportional to the length of your title. Did you do find the same thing? <laughs>
2: I sadly can endorse that. I used to just call myself staff.
0: (laughs) Well, you were certainly staff on as important a set of issues as there were. And I know you were a thought leader there. Let me start with you, Emma. Yesterday, I think it was yesterday. It's all blurring together. Maybe it was the day before yesterday. I I did Morning Joe, and I was waiting to go on. And one of the crew guys came out. And... uh, He's talking to another one, and he said, "Well, you know, the Russians have pulled out of this nuclear deal. This is how it all begins." He said, "I'm moving to Canada. I see where this is going." Do you have any words for him? Any, any, any soothing, soothing words for him?
1: I would say to him, "Don't move to Canada just yet." I think it was a really irresponsible thing of uh, Vladimir Putin to do, but. They've intended, they've they've signalled their intention that they are suspending really engagement with their obligations under New START. They are not withdrawing. And what they've really done here is just formalise what's been happening in more recent times. They haven't been really living up to their obligations. They haven't allowed inspections. They haven't been uh, attending meetings. And so what we're seeing here, while very unfortunate, isn't the sort of end of the treaty as we know it. Now, there are very serious implications and ramifications and we'll see what Russia does. They have said that they will continue to abide by the limits on the strategic arms that the US and Russia are allowed under the treaty. That's 1,550. But we will actually see what they do as a result. My take is it's more a sort of... um, political posturing, potentially playing to domestic audiences, but also internationally to try to threaten the United States and use some kind of leverage to get it to stop what it's doing in Ukraine and stop the support for Ukraine. But I don't think it's going to work. We've certainly seen that President Biden hasn't seemed to sort of taken the bait here, a very calm response, doubled down on support for defence of Ukraine in his recent speech in Poland. So I would say while we're at a critical point and a dangerous point. What we do in the next few years and decade will be consequential for our global security. Not all is lost just yet. And I think the crewmen can safely stay in the United States for a bit longer.
0: Well, that's, that's, I'm sure, very comforting to him. John, I know you've been thinking about this, writing about it on your substack, which in my mind is called the world's scariest substack. What's your reaction?
2: Look, I gotta try and stoke some controversy with Emma because I think she and I will agree on a lot. She doesn't want him to move to Canada because she's part of the tourist trade for Australia, which will be much safer than Canada if nuclear war breaks out. But I do tend to agree with Emma that you Look, know, this is
0: a political. It. Australia move. Australia is superior to Canada in every way. So Australia
1: I'm is not, more I'm not
2: I'm not I'm not stepping in there. I'm just not gonna go there.
1: We'll, well put David, thank you.
2: <laughs> I'll I'll tell Emma what I think about Australia offline. But you know, so At any rate, this is a political move, not a military move. The United States was very careful to say we haven't seen any change in Russia's nuclear posture. We haven't seen them deploying any more nuclear weapons. And quite frankly, what I would add is even if they do, we have plenty of nuclear weapons ourselves. This is not a threat to stability and deterrence. It's a threat to predictability, and it closes another door through which we eventually hope the United States and Russia will be able to walk through and talk as opposed to playing out this proxy war in Ukraine. But in the end, the way I view this is it's Vladimir Putin trying to change the topic. If the war were going well in Ukraine, he would be talking about the battlefront victories and the territory being claimed and the neo-Nazis being killed and all of that. And he can't because he's losing, or at least not winning. And so he's trying to change the subject. The question of why New START, I think, is an interesting one. And I've talked with a few people in and out of government over the last day or two. Some people think this is about Europe. I was just at Munich Security Conference last week. There was a great show of unity in support for NATO and support for Ukraine. I think there's a question about how deep that runs, but the show was very strong. Um, And I think Putin is playing to this sort of Cold War Soviet approach, which is if you can stoke the nuclear tension in Europe, maybe you can fracture NATO. And remember, Putin is a 70s KGB guy. So you know he sort of views the world through that lens. Other people think he's trying to gain leverage over the United States and Joe Biden. Maybe we love arms control more than we love Ukraine. And I think Emma hit the nail on the head, which is that that's not going to get anyone anywhere. President Biden has has almost always hit the tone about right, which is this is a big mistake by Putin, but there's no reason to panic. Our support for Ukraine hasn't changed. And eventually, if Putin wants to rejoin the treaty, we hope he'll do that. But in the meantime, we're in for a rough few months and years. Emma, today, Putin
0: appeared on video someplace saying, essentially doubling down on, on this point and saying, we're going to make more nuclear weapons. And again, could be just nuclear saber rattling. He, he seems to be having trouble making enough bullets to fight this war, much less nuclear weapons. Although maybe it's easier to, to make a couple nuclear weapons for them than it is to have a major production capacity and support this war. What do you think of the comment today?
1: Well I think he he said that he was going to strengthen the triad. And you know, I think these are the kinds of things he's been talking about uh, doing for a while and different kinds of missiles that is is testing that are potentially failing and and plans for bringing new missiles online. You know, I think this is sort of just more of the same talk. I don't see this as anything particularly new, but it's clearly trying to frame it in a way that's intended to stoke fear. So I I I don't sort of that doesn't concern me uh, so much. I think the point you're making, which is really interesting about being able to actually afford what he says he wants to do while he's executing a war that's failing in Ukraine, while he's needing to put resources into that war, you know, it makes me think about how much money it costs to build up nuclear arsenals. Clearly, it's not really in Russia's national security interest to be pouring a whole lot of money into building up nuclear arsenals at this point, nor is it in the United States' interest, quite frankly, to be pouring a whole lot more money into beefing up nuclear arsenals. And this is where, for me, the underlying point again is limits on nuclear weapons per New START treaty or other kinds of mechanisms are in both countries' national interests because no one can afford going back to the kind of arms race that we saw at the height of the Cold War and undoing all of that excellent work that resulted in us reducing the weapons from between 60 to 70,000 now to around 13 or so in current days.
0: John, without violating any federal laws, can you make our audience comfortable with the idea that the United States has means other than those that manifest themselves in this treaty in order to keep an eye on what the Russians are doing?
2: Sure. And I'll, I'll try to uh, restrain myself from violating laws and ending up in jail. When the New Star Treaty was put before the Senate in 2010, what we told members of the Senate is that, look, this treaty will be helpful in keeping an eye on Russia's nuclear forces, but that even if the Russians try to cheat, Our intelligence and national monitoring capability over Russia is really good, and it's going to get better. And so we don't need the treaty to know what Russia is doing, but it will put a cap on what Russia can do and will give us a, a, a yardstick against which to measure Russian behavior. So as this treaty is suspended, or if Russia is no longer going to cooperate, we still know where Russia's submarines are, where their missiles are, where their nuclear production facilities are. We know which trucks they use to transport materials from one site to another. And a big chunk of the U.S. intelligence capacity is geared towards tracking Russia's nuclear arsenal. So um, I'm not worried in the next couple of years, even if Russia fully uh, pulls out of this treaty, that we will sort of lose a handle on what Russia has. Over time, however, you will hear increasing calls that, well, the margin of error has changed. Maybe Russia at the extreme could have... 10 more or 50 more or 100 more, and that will influence how many weapons we ourselves will think we need to deploy. That's the sort of dynamic that Emma is talking about that got us into the arms race and in the 1970s led to us having 70,000 nuclear weapons, which is just insanity. The primary lesson of the Cold War is that once you have a reliable nuclear force that can ride out and survive a nuclear attack, the deterrence is in effect that we don't need more than 1,550. In fact, we think we could probably do with a lot less than 1,550. But if the Russians go up, there'll be political pressure on the United States to do the same. And as the Chinese go up, there'll be pressure in both Russia and the United States for us to do the same. So the recipe is is not a good one. It's one that we we know we don't like the outcome of, and we should be working pretty hard to try and avoid it.
0: Yeah, I was interested, you know, you're an advisor to Global Zero, and here you are saying, 70,000 is insane, and 1,550 is good. But global 1,550 just doesn't sound as catchy, I
2: guess. Well, you know, the, it, we we get a lot of sharp questions these days. Here's the way I look at it. In the Gulf War in uh, 1991, the United States was telling Saddam Hussein, if you light the uh, uh, oil fields on fire or use chemical or biological weapons, we will resort, we might use nuclear weapons against you, right? Now Vladimir Putin's invading Ukraine and saying, if anybody gets in our way, we might use nuclear weapons against you. The only way you can prevent nuclear weapons from being used or threaten them from being used is to get rid of them. Will we get there? That's a long-term project. We think we can. We know we can verify it if we did, but we're not in that situation. Right now, we're in a situation where people are thinking nuclear weapons are really attractive tools for international power, when in fact, all they're really good for is countering conventional capabilities in the United States or threatening uh, innocent populations in Ukraine, that seems like a world we should get away from.
0: You know, and I think I saw an article the other day, and, you know, in the world of Twitter where you're seeing a thousand articles a day, I'm not sure exactly where this came from, but essentially it was, well, see, the war in Ukraine proves deterrence doesn't work. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. The fact that we haven't had a nuclear exchange proves to me that deterrence doesn't work. Deterrence doesn't deter everything. And in fact, if there's one lesson of the past 70 years of deterrence, it's that people feel comfortable finding small wars, just not big ones.
1: Yeah, I think deterrence has been at play in this war, right? So what Putin has been able to do is deter the US and NATO from actually sending more support to Ukraine for putting boots on the ground. And other kinds of measures because the US and NATO is rightly concerned that if you do that, then you end up in a conflict between two major nuclear armed powers and you could lead to escalation. So Putin, because of his nuclear arsenal, has prevented more support for Ukraine than a lot of people would have liked. Now, on the flip side too, Putin has not extended his war in Ukraine into NATO countries. And so there's a certain amount of deterrence there because, you know, the US and NATO or NATO would respond in defense of NATO countries, potentially ending up in some kind of nuclear war. So I think we can see kind of two ways in which deterrence has been at play. We don't like the way that Putin has used his nuclear weapons as a tool of coercion, really, to enable his invasion of Ukraine, to bring a, commit atrocious war crimes humanitarian crisis, impact on the global economy. We don't like that, and I think that's what John was sort of saying. You know, We've got to think about what kind of world do we want to be in where nuclear weapons are beneficial to would-be aggressors and dictators. So I think we don't like the way nuclear weapons have been used and deterrence has been at play, so it's incumbent upon us for the long term for our, our global security to figure out a way we can guarantee security without relying on mutual annihilation and the risks of nuclear weapons in the hands of potential irrational few. Yeah,
0: no, no, no doubt. John, you had a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago talking about Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine once had nukes and we persuaded them to get rid of their nukes and that therefore we owe them something. I think this is true, right? Because picking up on Emma's point, were Ukraine still a nuclear power it might be less likely that Russia invaded them, right?
2: So I'll be clear because I don't want to get yelled at. I didn't say Ukraine had nukes. Soviet nuclear weapons were left on Ukrainian territory under the control of Russian guards and operators. And we convinced Ukraine not to try to seize those weapons and to facilitate their return back to Russia. I personally, having worked and lived through those years, don't think Ukraine would have ever been an independent country had they made a move towards seizing those weapons. I don't think there was a path for the United States to recognize Ukraine as independent if they said, oh, yeah, we want to be independent and be the world's third largest nuclear power on day one. Imagine giving your newborn access to a nuke, not a recipe for household uh, stability. But the fact is that the number one priority in the collapse of the Soviet Union was to make sure that Russia and Russia alone was the inheritor of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. And we, the United States, under George Bush and under Bill Clinton, made that the priority. So we leaned on Ukraine pretty heavy and made sure that was the case. And as a result, we got them to join the Non-Proliferation Treaty. We got them to sign up to New START, or sorry, the START Treaty. And we, Russia and the Brits, signed the Budapest Memorandum, which said, we will all respect your territorial integrity. Russia's violated that. Okay, surprise, Russia is a, a cheating, lying country that does horrible things. But the United States, when we sign something, should it should mean something. Now, it doesn't mean we're promised to start World War III over Ukraine, but it means we do have a moral as well as a a practical commitment and an obligation to help Ukraine. And I think as Americans argue over the next several years about how far we're willing to go to help Ukraine, we should keep the history in mind. Because if we give up on Ukraine, it says to a lot of countries, you know what, nuclear weapons probably are really useful. Uh, To South Korea, our ally, maybe we do need nuclear weapons. To Poland, our ally, Maybe we do need nuclear weapons. And to those countries that are have nuclear weapons, we'd like to reverse that. Like North Korea, it's going to be even harder to do that. So, you know, nukes don't help the United States. I've made this argument for years. We're the world's conventional superpower. We should not be making the world safe for nuclear weapons to spread or to be used. We're playing against our advantages. And I think this is a case where we can see that on display.
0: Excellent points.
2: And so, you know, we are
0: the world's conventional superpower. We should be pretty relaxed. We spend $800 billion a year. We spend more than the next 10 or 12 countries added up, but we never seem to relax. I think there's a big industry in the United States focused on ensuring we don't, but sometimes we're confused about where the threats lie. And the other day, Ron DeSantis, who is one of the three most likely people to become the next president of the United States, said something to the effect of, hey, Russia's not really anything to worry about we really should be worried about China. And it struck me that Russia has approximately 20 times as many nuclear weapons as China does. So maybe that's wrong. But maybe, Emma, you think Ron DeSantis had a great insight. What, where do you come at
1: <laughs> this? I think I would probably not say that he had a great insight. I mean, I think clearly there is concern about China at the moment. I do think some of the rhetoric about China... Is not helpful when we actually need to be thinking clear-eyed about what the actual threat is. And the fact that China does still have far fewer nuclear weapons than the United States or Russia. But we have to be watching what it what it's doing. Um, you know, clearly it's got a modernization plan, a pretty aggressive plan to build more nuclear weapons and missiles. So, you know, China is something to to be concerned about and to be thinking about and to try to engage with China, quite frankly. Now. That's probably a bit of a way off before we can get any meaningful kind of arms control discussions with China. Um, But I think (laughs) Russia is clearly a huge problem at the moment, and I think we can't afford to take our eyes off the ball. I think we need to be able to do uh, both things at once, but doing them in a sensible way that's not a sort of knee-jerk reaction that then results in us going overboard and developing um more and more arsenals that to the cost of, of of billions and trillions of dollars,
0: yeah, no question, and you know, let's be direct. Ron DeSantis was essentially offering up Russian talking points because that is an argument that's being made by many on the right that we should you know we got no bones to pick with russia. I'd like to continue and move the subject to a different set of nuclear discussions and ones that are getting more worrisome as we go, and that has to do with Iran. But before we do that, this is the point where we take a break. We say to those of you who are joining in the general public, thanks for joining us. Uh, And if you want to be able to listen to all of our podcasts, then you should should become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. And essentially, you get 33% more podcasts, and you get to hear things that may be real important to you. So we're about to discuss Iran's nuclear program. You really need to hear about this. So become a member and then you, then you can. But for now, those of you who aren't members, thanks for joining us. And for those of you who are, stand by.